Uh, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. And let me open us today in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we are so blessed. We are blessed beyond our comprehension. We, we can't even begin to scratch the surface of understanding how incredibly kind you have been to us. Lord, you have been kind to us in every practical way, that we are here, that we are alive, that we are breathing, that we are gathered, that we are free to do what we are doing right now. Lord, we have been blessed in a practical sense beyond uh, comprehension. But much more, Lord, you have blessed us in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that you have given us far beyond what we can understand when we say that you have forgiven us, that we have not received what we deserved, what we earned, but in Christ we have been given His righteousness. And so, Lord, we pray today that as we read this text, as we read this interesting passage from the Old Testament, as we look into this beautiful story of history, that for us it would come alive with the power of the gospel, that it would be revealed to us what you have for us in this passage. Lord, this word is your word, and we ask that today you would speak it fresh to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would ask that you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. Perhaps you've heard that quote before. That is the most famous quote of the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. But Nietzsche, well, he didn't even believe in God. He was an atheist. But like most self-professing atheists, he sure did find a lot of opportunity to speak about God. As an atheist, Nietzsche wasn't claiming that God had literally died. He later explained his statement this way by saying, quote, the belief in the Christian God has become unbelievable. He claimed that God had lost credibility in the realm of science. He had lost authority in the realm of morality, and he had lost significance in the everyday life of the average person in Europe. In short, Nietzsche was claiming that God had lost in every meaningful arena in which mankind exists. This raises an interesting question. Can God lose? Being that he is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent, it would seem that he should be victorious in every possible endeavor in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible. Now, before we dive into 1 Samuel 5, let me remind you what just occurred in chapter 4. In that chapter, we saw Israel experience two horrific military defeats. After the first battle occurred, the Israelites decided to force the Lord into the fight by taking the Ark of the Covenant onto the battlefield. And it was carried there by Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, men that the Bible describes as worthless men. And instead of resulting in a miraculous victory like they anticipated, instead Hophni and Phinehas were killed, the Israelites were decimated, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured. This was the largest military defeat that the Israelites would experience from the time of the Exodus to the time of the exile. When the news arrived back at Shiloh, the place where the tabernacle had been set up and the place where the Ark of the Covenant had been as a center of worship for the people, when the news arrived there, the people of that city began to weep and wail. And when Eli, the high priest, heard the news, he fell and he broke his neck under his own weight. And when fin Phineas's wife heard the news that her husband and her father-in-law had died, she immediately went into labor and she gave birth to a little boy and she named that little boy Ichabod, meaning the glory of the Lord has departed. Now at this stage, 
the narrative in the book of 1 Samuel is going to do something very rare, something that almost never happens throughout the entire Old Testament. The camera is going to leave the Israelites. In fact, it's going to leave Israel altogether. And it's going to follow the ark into the pagan land of the Philistines. And while it is there, we are going to have the opportunity for the next two chapters to see exactly what is happening outside of Israel. Now, with this in mind, please follow along in your own copy of the Scriptures as I begin reading in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. This is God's Word. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is read today for your sanctification. 1 Samuel 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God, of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven." Now, in order to digest this story, what we're going to do is we're simply going to walk through the text verse by verse, followed by a series of applications and then a series of connections to the gospel. Verse 1 reminds us of the fact that there was something more important to the Philistines than just physically defeating the Israelites on the battlefield. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. That's what it said. Now, remember... When the Philistines saw the ark had entered into the camp of the Israelites back in chapter 4, they said, a God has come into the camp. They looked at that and they became terrified and they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Now they have fought a lot of battles. They've gone to war many times. This was a seafaring, warfaring people. But nobody had ever had the audacity to go into their temple and to bring their God onto the battlefield. 
Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before, they said. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. That's what they said. Now, ironically, the Philistines originally had a higher view of God than the Israelites did. Where the Israelites carelessly carried the Ark of the Covenant onto the battlefield, thinking nothing of breaking God's commands, the Philistines saw it and they were shaking in their boots. But when they fought, they not only won, they completely demolished the Israelites, 40,000 soldiers dead. So they collected the ark as a trophy of war, and they rushed it back to Ashdod, which was probably the most populated of the five cities of the Philistines. Verse 2, then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now the people of the ancient Near East did not think of warfare in the same way that most people do now. Religion was a far more central part of their thinking, and they viewed their gods to be territorial and to be hungry for expansion of the borders of their realms. So every single battle that was fought was viewed to be an earthly reflection of a war between the gods of those two lands. So if your team lost on the battlefield, it was ultimately due to the fact that your god was defeated in the battle in the heavens. The soldiers on earth were just basically like, pawns on the chessboards of the gods. That's how they viewed things. And the Philistines, being an idol-worshiping people, thought that the Ark of the Covenant was the earthly manifestation of the God of Israel. So they took the Ark and they placed it directly in front of their own God as tribute, as a way to show that Dagon had defeated Yahweh. So I ask again, can God lose? Verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. Now, to superstitious people like the Philistines, there is no way that they would have viewed this as some kind of an accident or natural occurrence. But like all good servants do for their idols, when they fall down, they picked him right back up. Remember, the Philistines were a sea people who had originated in the Greek isles, and they invaded like Vikings along the coastlands of Israel. And as a seafaring people, it probably should not surprise you that their chief idol, Dagon, was supposed to be a god who ruled over the seas. But it might surprise you when you see what he actually looked like. Here's a picture of the deity Dagon. Now, perhaps (laughs) you've noticed he's a merman. If you just put a trident in hand, his, he's basically Ariel's dad. <laughs> and their merman god could not remain upright in the presence of the Lord. And just like any fish on the land, their merman god couldn't even help himself back up. He just laid there on the ground like a fish out of water, suffocated to death. So what did they do? They just propped him back up, and they went about their day. And at the end of the day, they went back to bed. Verse 4. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the, Lord, the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. 
one of the common recurrences that you will see throughout the Old Testament is the visual destruction of the head of God's enemies. Jael nailed a tent peg through the head of Sisera in Judges 5. In Judges 9, a woman took a millstone off of a tower and pushed it off and crushed the head of Abimelech. A few chapters after what we're reading today, David is going to cut the head off of Goliath. And in Samuel 31, King Saul, who proves to be an enemy of the Lord, has his head cut off. And that's just three of the books of the Old Testament. This all stems from the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel in the Bible. The promise in Genesis chapter 3.15, where the Lord tells the servant, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In that promise, we see that God is going to send somebody who would be the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He would make everything right that Adam and the devil and Eve had worked together to make go wrong. And he would do it at expense to himself. His heel would be bruised. And the entire Old Testament is building to a point where God is going to send a Messiah who will, at physical cost to himself, crush the head of the serpent. Now, with this image of Dagon sprawled in pieces on the floor of the temple, we get just a tiny glimpse of the fact that no enemy who stands against the Lord will ever prosper. It appeared to the Israelites that God had lost. Remember, the only thing that we have heard the Israelites say, the only verbal response we have to their incredible loss is recorded in the daughter-in-law of Eli, who said, the glory of the Lord has departed. He's gone. It's over. We've lost. But God was simply allowing himself to temporarily be mocked so that he might display himself even more glorious. This is not just speculation on my part. The Lord tells us so explicitly when he recounts for us through the pen of Asaph the psalmist exactly what happened here in these events. In Psalm 78, We have a record of many occasions in Israel's history where they rejected the Lord. And here's just a portion of that chapter where it references the exact story we're looking at in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 6. It says, Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. Now let me pause there for a second. Here we see that it is clear there was a reason why the Lord did not fight for them on the battlefield. There was a reason why the Lord did not protect them from the Philistines. There is a reason why in that first battle, thousands of them fell, and in the second battle, 40,000 of them fell. It's because he did not fight for them because of their incredible proliferation of sin in their land. He did not fight for them because of their idolatry. He did not fight for them because, as we hear over and over in the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever was right in his own eyes. It was spiritual and political anarchy. Verse 16. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. Wait a minute. Didn't those people just randomly walk up and grab the box and carry it out? No, no, no. He forsook 
his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. The Ark of the Covenant was not just a box. It was designed by the Lord, and it had been a place where he commanded it to be built so that he might meet there with his people. It was truly a place where the manifest presence of God would go. And it was supposed to remain in the tabernacle which had been set up at Shiloh. And after this point, you will never see Shiloh be a significant place of worship ever again in Israel. But notice the exact wording of verse 61. He delivered his power to captivity. Who delivered him to captivity? God himself delivered himself to captivity. He delivered his glory to the hand of the foe. Does God ever lose? Can he lose? In this instance, it appeared that God had lost. But it was specifically so that the Philistines could temporarily feel as though they had victory. Verse 62. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. Now, this does not mean that God was asleep. It's a way of saying that God was intentionally delaying any action. Then when the the right time came, God awoke and he put his enemies to shame. Now, how did that happen? It began with the shaming of their God as it lay in pieces on the floor. But how did the Philistines respond to this sign of God's authority? Verse 5. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Do you see what's happening here? This is what you call spin. Instead of acknowledging that their merman God was fake and turning to follow Yahweh, the true God who defeated their God, instead the priests of Dagon made up a story that the ground in front of him must now be holy and must not be touched. But their cover-up didn't work very well because God then turned his attention beyond just humiliating Dagon and began to humiliate the Philistine people. Verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now, there are two things that I want you to notice in this verse. First, remember I told you a couple of weeks ago that chapter 4 is all about glory. It's all about the glory of God. It was about the Lord's glory, and eventually the people realized the glory of the Lord has departed. Well, The word heavy in that chapter that we read as heavy in English is the word glory. Now we see that the hand of the Lord is heavy against the people. It's not the exact word in Hebrew, but it is the same root and it's very similar. And I think what is going on here is there is an intentional usage of this word to show that the Philistines who thought they had captured and defeated the glory of the Lord were instead heavy under the glory of the Lord because God's hand was against them. In particular, it was the hand of the Lord that was against them. And of course, I think this is being used because remember, Dagon can't lift his hands at all. Their God can't lift a finger to help them. A, because his little flipper hands were broken on the temple floor. And B, because even if they glued them back on, he's just an image made of metal. But the mighty hand of the Lord, the God who is living and active, was heavy 
against them. And the second thing that I want you to notice in this chapter is what the Lord did to humiliate these people. In the ESV and many other translations, it says that the Lord afflicted them with tumors. Now, generally speaking, if you find out you have a tumor, you need to get that checked out pretty quick because sometimes a tumor is a really bad prognosis. Regardless of what kind of tumors these were, they were very clearly painful and they were noticeable because all of the people were aware that they had them. In other words, this is not something that was hidden randomly within the, the insides of people's bodies that you could only find during an autopsy. There are multiple suggestions based upon the language concerning exactly what is going on here. I'm going to give you a couple of the best options. And one of the best ways for me to do that is just to show you what it says in the King James Version of the text. It says, But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with emeralds, even Ashdod and the coasts thereof. Now, in case you don't know what emeralds were, which I did not, the King James did an updated version of their Bible where they changed the English to match their modern spellings and their modern words. Here's what it says in the 21st century version of the King James Version, where it says, But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon those of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with hemorrhoids, even Ashdod and the borders thereof. Now, to be honest, I did not get into pastoral ministry to talk about hemorrhoids. Uh, there's a reason I did not go to medical school. But don't overlook the fact that most of the people, it just says the Lord destroyed them. It's the ones who lived that got these emeralds. So he killed many people, but the ones that were left, he made them miserable. Now, some scholars note this might not be hemorrhoids. In fact, it says, it notes that it's only the men that are said to have had this. Now, sometimes the Bible will do this where it says men, but it actually means people. But there's a particularly masculine bent to the way that this is repeated, and perhaps this is not emeralds, as it is mentioned, and it, it's reflected in the way that they use it in the International Standard Version of the Bible, which says, the Lord heavily oppressed the people of Ashdod, devastating and afflicting Ashdod and its territories with tumors of the groin. Now, whatever was going on here, it was a bitter disease that seems to have made everyone who had it want to die. Verse 7, and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God, the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. Now, one of the things I find so incredibly interesting about this is the general public seemed to understand that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, was alive and that he was powerful and that he was the one who brought on this citywide pandemic. There was no confusion about the origin of this deadly disease. Verse 8, so they sent and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. Do you see what's happening here? Instead of repenting, they just decide, let's get rid of it. But of course, we can't give it back to Israel. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's give it to our friends, the people of Gath. So Gath, by the way, is one of the other major five cities of the Philistines. It's most famous and known for being the home city of Goliath, the giant. So if you ever want to understand why Goliath hated the Israelites so much, one word, emeralds. That's all you need to know. 
But after they had brought it around, verse 9, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Let's just kick it down the road. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people cried out, they have brought the ark around the ark of the Lord of Israel to kill us and our people. Now, Ekron was one of the other five great cities, and they had heard in advance that wherever the ark went, the Philistines suffered. So they tried to refuse delivery with an emphatic line in the sand, do not bring it here, but that didn't work. And the people of Gath seemed to be really intent on getting it inside of Ekron, so they delivered the ark there, and that didn't, when, that didn't work. When it landed inside of the city, all of the worst fears of the people were actually realized. Verse 11. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven." In other words, many, 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 many people did die, and the other ones were crying out to heavens for death. Now, even though Israel did not defeat the Philistines on the battlefield, the Lord still defeated them on his own. Let me share with you four incredibly brief applications, followed by five gospel connections to our passage. Application one, number one, do not worship mermaids. <laughs> application number two, do not assume that your idols are any less silly or any more powerful than Dagon the merman. They are all ridiculous. They are all created. They are all flawed. They are all incapable of helping you. They will all make big promises, and they will all let you down. Number three, do not drink the Kool-Aid that Nietzsche and all the other philosophers are selling. God is not dead, and he will put his enemies to shame in due time. Application number four, do not respond to the Lord's discipline by trying to push God away from you like the Philistines did. Run to the Lord, not away from him, because that is where you find peace and freedom and forgiveness and healing. Now let's close with five connections to the gospel that we find here in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Number one, let's think about sin. Can God lose? Why was the Ark of the Covenant in the land of the Philistines in the first place? Why wasn't it where it was supposed to be in Shiloh? Why was it dragged into a pagan temple and made to look like a trophy for Dagon? Well, we already read it earlier in Psalm 78, 58. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. To put it another way, God went to these extreme lengths of sending his own presence into the battlefield because of the sin of the people. The gospel story is that God saw the sin of his people and he sent his son to the battlefield. The Ark of the Covenant was not in Philistia because God had done anything wrong. That Ark was not captured because God had made a mistake. Similarly, Jesus was not on the cross because he had done anything wrong. Rather, both of these events happened because it was a way for God to be both just and the justifier of his people. Sin always requires death. Number two, let's consider shame. Can God lose? Well, often we associate shame with losing. 
But in the Bible, shame is always associated with sin. Sin produced shame, and therefore, someone who has no sin should never be made to experience shame. But in 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Lord was temporarily put to shame by being made a spectacle before the throne of the fish god Dagon. But God was setting them up in order to put them to shame. Psalm 78, 66, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. Dagon, his head got cut off, his hands got cut off, his power is gone, his authority is gone. He looks weak. He's put to shame. Well, at the cross, Jesus was put to shame. We can use that language because the Bible does. He was not only beaten beyond human recognition, he was stripped of his clothing, and he was made to hang publicly on a hillside outside the city wall where everyone in Jerusalem would be able to look out and see him. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. But don't think for just a second that that means there was no shame. He experienced an immense amount of shame. He was the center of attention for every mocker and every scoffer in Israel. Even since that day, every land that hears the gospel, whether it's this one or one far across the world, whenever that message of the cross reaches a new place, man finds ways to laugh at the idea of a crucified Savior who died in such a shameful way. Don't believe me? Watch television for just 10 minutes and you will see that in our culture, people find ways to still mock and scoff and look at him and say, what a shameful thing. Jesus was made to experience shame for a time. With this notion of shame in mind, consider how Paul describes the gospel in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, when he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's the gospel. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But included in this gospel message, notice what he says. This is another side of what took place. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Can God lose? Well, the cross certainly looked like losing. But in that moment, Jesus was putting his enemies, the enemies of God, to shame. Number three, let's consider exile. One of the other incredible depictions of the gospel in this chapter is displayed when you truly understand the promised curses that were guaranteed against the Israelites by God. My friend Harry helped me to see this. The last curse that God listed was not that the Israelites would lose on the battlefield but that they would be taken out of their homeland, they would be taken out of Israel, and they would be sent into exile. But it was not Israel that was exiled that day. The Lord allowed the ark to be exiled into the land of the Philistines. Now, we'll see in the next week that the Philistines only kept the ark for seven months. It was only in their land for seven months, and it did enough devastation that they said, get it out, give it back. But it's important to note that from the time of the ark leaving Shiloh, to the time it entered into Jerusalem was 70 years. Now, perhaps that number is familiar to you. That is the exact number of years that the Jews were in exile in Babylon. The ark here serves as a picture of God's substitutionary atonement. It is a picture of how God would absorb the ultimate penalty for the sins of his people. The ultimate substitution for sin happened when God the Father 
made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The point of the cross is that there was a beautiful but unfair trade. Jesus gets all my sin. I get all his righteousness. And that righteousness is freely given to all who believe in Christ. And if you are here today and you are not currently a follower of Jesus, if you are not born again, please hear the good news that is being presented to you and repent and turn to him and he will forgive you. The fourth thing I want you to see here as a connection to the gospel is the concept of death. You see, Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is dead. He remains dead and we have killed him. Can God lose? Well, from an atheistic standpoint, you have to believe that death is the most extreme form of failure. It is the end. But what appeared to be loss was actually a victory in the form that nobody expected. Imagine the excitement. I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of the Philistines. Remember the battle. They saw the ark and they were terrified. Imagine the excitement and the elation of the Philistines when they won. And they captured that Ark of the Covenant. And they brought it back. And they claimed, we have defeated Yahweh. They thought that the same God who conquered the Egyptians had fallen to the strength of their hands. They thought they had won. They thought God had lost. But in 1 Samuel chapter 5, God allowed himself to appear dead so as to send a crushing blow to the Philistines. Or as Psalm 78, 65 puts it, then the Lord awoke from sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine. Jesus did not just appear to be asleep, nor did he just appear to be dead. He did not just close his eyes for a bit. Jesus died. He literally died. He experienced the ultimate end of the curse of sin that was promised to all of Adam's race. He who knew no sin tasted the curse of sin and its results, death. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But what nobody saw coming was the fact that Jesus used death to defeat death. He conquered the curse that stood against all mankind and he reversed it by being consumed by it. Jesus boldly laid down his life and unlike anyone else, he had the power to take it up again. The death that Jesus experienced on the cross appeared to all of his enemies like Jesus had lost. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ revealed that death could not hold him. Jesus conquered death by dying so that we could experience life. The fifth thing that I want you to notice here is the devil. Now Dagon, well, Dagon is just a dollar store knockoff version of the devil. But don't get it twisted. That idol was more than just a twisted, broken mess of metal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul explained to the Corinthians that they should not go into the temples of the pagan gods. And as part of his argument, he explained that when people were sacrificing to these statues, they were not actually sacrificing to those metal creatures that were formed. They were actually sacrificing to demons. Here's just a small snippet of his arguments. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. 
Now, Dagon was a demonic expression of a religion that was anti-God. It was diametrically opposed to the true God. And just like all false religions, it was, in some mysterious way, infused with demonic involvement. But God allowed Dagon to briefly appear victorious. But that brief appearance of victory quickly gave way to reality as Dagon was crushed. Jesus, likewise, appeared to lose. Now, just imagine for a moment that you've never read the Bible. You've never heard the stories in the Bible. You've never heard about Jesus Christ. Let's just pretend for a moment that you are completely ignorant of everything that's in the Scripture. And you get a copy of the book of John. And you begin reading at chapter 1, verse 1. And you read about this Son of God who is so incredibly powerful. And as you make your way through the book, you become more and more enamored with this this man, Jesus Christ. And as you make your way through... Imagine what you would think when you get to John 13, 27, when it's speaking about Judas, and it says, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. You would probably think to yourself, Nothing has ever worked so far. Everyone who has hated him has always fallen short. There is no way that Satan is going to work together with Judas to actually kill Jesus. It's not possible. And then... You see it. It works. He does. He betrays Jesus. The Pharisees put him before a kangaroo court and they kill him. And Jesus dies. Now we don't really know what's going on in Satan's mind here when it says that he entered into Judas. But what we do know is that he was doing everything he could to get Jesus to that cross. But the Lord used that very cross to crush the head of Satan. Just as we read earlier in Genesis chapter 3.15, Satan did cause Jesus great pain. Satan did bruise his heel. But on a hill called the place of the skull, Jesus put Satan to open shame by destroying his power. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 puts it like this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil. Can God lose? Well, at the cross, it sure looked like a loss to the disciples. It looked like a loss to Mary. It looked like a loss to Jesus' friends and to his enemies. But Satan could not defeat him. And Jesus destroyed the devil at the cross. God is not dead. God cannot lose. Jesus is alive. And through death and burial and resurrection, Jesus conquered sin and shame and death and the devil. And in him... We are blessed to share in that victory. Victory in Jesus. Let me now leave you with what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this means for everyone who has been born again. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that even though the Israelites fought on that battlefield and they tried to do everything in their power to find victory, that when they worked in their own strength, they lost. But you, through a mysterious and surprising act, went into the land of the Philistines, and you conquered. Lord, we thank you much more that Jesus Christ came into our land.
and he conquered. And then he did so in the most surprising of ways, by humbling himself, by lowering himself, by permitting himself to be put to shame so that now he might be given the name that is above every name and that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray these things in his name. Amen.